Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Now, in the last few uh, weeks, our fall series has been on what we call reset, and it's really the resetting of your heart. And last week, Dr. Davis, Chuck Davis, and Ingrid Davis were really talking about how the the goal of repentance in the scriptures is that you have a heart for God, that your heart is oriented towards God, that it's turned towards God. Now, I wanted to spend just a few minutes as we begin and, and really get you to think about what is the biblical view of the heart? Now, the heart in the Bible is not simply the emotions. For English speakers, the heart often just refers to the emotional sphere of life. But in the scriptures, the heart is the control center of your entire being. It's the place that you are the most in control over. It's where you have decided what you believe. It's where you've decided what your deepest commitments are. The heart is basically the trust mechanism of your life. It's where you have decided what is trustworthy and what is not. Every person's heart is oriented towards something. Every heart is turned toward or directed towards something. If your heart is not oriented towards God, then it is a disordered heart with disordered loves. One of the key definitions of sin is that you have disordered loves in a disordered heart. And so what Jesus is all about What the Holy Spirit's curriculum is all about is to manifest your heart's direction, to manifest what the orientation of your heart is. And so here Jesus is speaking in his Sermon on the Mount, and he is concluding the sermon, and I'd like us to read this together. I'd like you to realize that in the entire sermon, he's been going after the heart, He's been going after what you trust most, what you believe and value most, where your deepest commitments are. For Jesus, the heart is where he is really bringing his teaching. So here is Matthew chapter 7. I like it when you read God's word out loud with me. Let's read this together. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Oh boy, what is that? Is Mason here? Can you come help me, Mason? I'm, I'm just of that generation that I can't handle this. I try, but I'm not sure what that is. Ah.
So as Christians, we slip back into trying to be our own savior. You can see how, how much I've grown. I was not my own savior just then. So here, we, here is an issue that many of us do not realize how much we default to saving ourselves. And one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount speaks of, and Jesus teaches so clearly, is that in life you're always facing two choices. There are always two roads, there's always two foundations for your life. But he makes it very clear that one foundation, one road, one choice is destructive, and the other is life. Now, the, the problem for most of us is when we hear wide road, narrow road, wide gate, narrow gate, house on the rock, house on the sand, is we begin to examine our lives and say, am I a good person? Do I live a good life? I don't want to be a bad person. I don't want to live a bad life. So the, the idea comes to us to look at our behavior, to look at our reactions and our actions. And, and what Jesus is saying here, friends, is that is the, the very symptom of the wide road. That you're trying to compare yourself well or trying to prove yourself in some way to be good or in some way to have grown or whatever it is. Jesus says that is indicative of the wrong road and the wrong foundation. Jesus, in all of his teaching, is not so concerned with the what of what you do, but the why you do what you do. Motivation is everything. These two paths, these two houses all look the same. They are so easily confused. And Jesus says that everybody finds the wide way. He's not, he's not in there talking about people who live an evil life or live a rebellious life. He's talking about people who live a devout religious life. And he's saying they have done what everyone has done. They have tried to justify, to prove themselves to be good. See, Jesus is saying in his teaching, and the Holy Spirit is working in your life in such a way that he's saying, I'm not looking at the outward, I'm looking at the inward. Here's what Jesus rejects. He rejects a good life lived for the wrong reason. Motivation is everything because motivation is the heart. Here's what Jesus says about these wide road people. I reject, he rejects their righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because they think they're righteous for God, but they're really just doing it for themselves. And so Jesus knows that their reward is that they're seen as righteous by others and he says that is the revelation of their motivation. If your spirituality, if you're wanting to change or whatever, if it has a motivation that has a wrong foundation, then even your change is wrong. And it will lead to destruction. Jesus doesn't say, hey, some changes are better than others. He says some changes go to destruction and some go to life. If you're going to go with God in a way that brings life, you're going to have to make the right road choices. You're going to have to make the right motivational choices. What Jesus is all about when he speaks to the Pharisees, who are far more righteous than any of us in this room, what he's all about is he says their righteousness does not come from the heart. So the two roads are this, a road of self Proving righteousness or a road of self-salvation strategy or it's the road where you realize I'm utterly bankrupt. I have nothing to prove to God. I have nothing to gain or give to God and I have to come completely poverty of spirit, a spiritually bankrupt person. Now here's, here's the issue. Is some people will do that once, but they don't realize that they have to do that for the rest of their life. That you bring nothing to this equation except your sin. 
You do not bring righteousness. It's not Jesus plus your righteousness. It's Jesus plus nothing. But this is the awesome thing about the narrow road. It is an utterly inclusive road. No one can be excluded from the narrow road because it's not about your gender. It's not about your race. It's not about your past. Anyone who recognizes that they cannot justify themselves has the beginning of the entrance into the narrow gate. But in order to cross over from the narrow gate into the narrow road, the gate itself has to be the finished work of Jesus Christ and your absolute and utter dependence on his work. Think about this with, are you tracking with me a little bit? See, another word for proving ourselves is kind of a theological word that says to justify yourself. So it's, in a sense, what happens is people by their lives are trying to demonstrate either to themselves, to others, or to God that they're somehow worthy or they're somehow respectable even in the eyes of other people. You see, but we are justified, we are proven righteous only when we recognize we have no righteousness to bring. And we begin to say, but I can, by faith, receive the righteousness of Christ as my own. That's the narrow way. That's why few find it. Few find it because few are looking for someone else to justify them. They're looking for their own justification. So I pray more. I go to church more. I go to that pastor who preaches on and on and on and on. There were too many in the first service who agreed with that statement. So what happens is when you feel this desire to prove yourself, or when others rise up in your face and they seem like they're wanting you to prove yourself, then it's, it is the most important heart remembrance. The most important commitment in your life is to say, wait a minute, it's not my record. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness and him alone. I am right with God. I am proven righteous with God because of Jesus Christ. It is not because of your faith. Your faith does not make you righteous. It's your faith in the righteousness of Christ and at your account that makes you righteous. The cause is not you. In some ways, think about it like this. Your ATM card cannot create wealth. But it accesses the wealth. And some of us have had that time where there was no wealth to access. I noticed there are ATM machines that say, you can get $5 here. It'll only cost you $3. But, uh, but the ATM cannot create wealth. The ATM card, it can only access it. Faith does not create righteousness for you. But faith is the way you access the righteousness of Christ. And when you access his righteousness, then you are as righteous as Christ. This can only be by faith, because I see, I mean, look at you people. You're not righteous. I mean, if you think you are, you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. And if you know that you're not, then you're at least standing at the narrow gate, which leads to the narrow road that leads to life. See, in a way, you can't totally tell who is righteous because Jesus said the houses look the same. It all depends. Is there a rock under the house or is there sand under the house? And when do you know that there's sand? When the, when the storm comes. When the rain and the wind blows. Boy, isn't that a powerful word when it says a good tree will never produce bad fruit and a bad tree will never produce good fruit? It says even our righteousness is as filthy rags because if it doesn't come from a changed heart, 
if it doesn't come from a heart oriented towards Christ, then it's always bad fruit, even if everybody else is impressed. See, one of the issues that we have to realize is everything changes if you will let the sphere that you live in, the foundation of your life, be the grace of God. What happens to a lot of Christians in this idea of going back to being our own savior isn't just that we, we, we do this in an unsophisticated way. We do it in a very sophisticated way. We start thinking, I need to be better. So we say, if I could just read my Bible more, if I, just, if I pray more, if I do all of these things, then I'm making myself in some way worthy. But what we're doing is we're revealing that our motivations are still wrong. And so the issue is, do I understand that what makes me feel good about myself is not what I've done, but what Christ has done for me? I, my own you know, love language is to serve. I love it when I do something that someone really likes and they go, oh, thank you. And that was, they really see the light in their eyes or the smile on their face. So in the last few years, since Lisa had cancer, there have been all, all different times where she's been very fatigued. Her chemo uh, drug she takes each day really makes her tired. So there are times you know, at night where she's just very, very tired. And so I've taken to, to cooking a lot more or calling Grubhub or DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever it might be. I've gotten proficient at all those things. And, and, and Lisa often, when I'm taking care of the meal, will look at me and say, I'm so sorry that I can't do that. Or at times when she, at night, when she's really, really tired from fatigue, from a side, a side effect, and you'll say, can you go get water for me? I just can't seem to do it right now. And I'll go and do it, and I'll bring the water. She goes, I'm so sorry I had to ask that of you. Now, I want you to understand that. Lisa's a very responsible person. She thinks of taking care of me as one of her main responsibilities, which I agree, and it's really important. <laughs> it's a calling of God on her life, you know. But I want, I want you to understand something. I don't want to hear, I'm sorry. Because I didn't, I didn't do it because something was wrong. I did it because I love her. I did it because I wanted to serve her. I want you to understand something today. Until you get to that place where you stop saying, I'm sorry all the time. And you go, thank you, Jesus. And you go, it's grace. I don't have to deserve it. As a matter of fact, the very nature of grace is it's taking me out of the realm of having to earn something, and it's putting me in the realm of having it without having earned it. And until, friends, you start to truly understand the grace of God, not only will you not live in the love of God, you won't be able to live in the love of other people. Isn't it amazing that many of us can quote Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we condemn each other. You didn't do this enough. You didn't say this right. You didn't treat me this way. You didn't do that. Jesus doesn't condemn you, but I do. Does that make sense? Does it make sense in any way for us to hold a charge and be better with someone else for something Jesus has already forgiven. If I am trusting in and believing in the forgiveness of God, how can I live in bitterness and grudges with other people? Am I saying somehow that I want God to treat me in grace, but I'm not going to treat anybody else in grace? But also, isn't it interesting that if you truly stop having to prove yourself, and you stop having to say you're sorry all the time, and you start really opening your eyes to all the ways God is serving you, and others are serving you, then we can actually get real with each other. I have blessed to have, to have had these two women in my life, my wife and my daughter, who love me and who accept me and who know me really well, but they don't put up with anything. 
So one of my issues is if I get too stressed, I get irritable. When I've come to the end of my own emotional capacity, I get very cranky. So I'll come home, and I don't take it out on people in the church because you pay my salary, but I go... Uh, <laughs> So I go home and I'm like, and I'm like, you know, I had a miserable day and I had to do this and that. Nobody knows how much I have to do. And I'm having this great pity party. And, and my wife and my daughter would go, why are you so irritable? I, I go, I am not. I'm not cranky. And there's this miserable verse in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not irritable. And it doesn't say is not irritable you know, when everything's gone your way, is not irritable when all things in your circumstances are not stressful. It says that when you're living in the narrow way and you're living in a foundation of the rock, then you will not allow irritability to be the way you deal with other people. And so they would bring that up and then the Holy Spirit would bring that up. And you know what he was saying to me? You're not living in grace. How do, how do I know I wasn't? Because I was saying, you don't know what kind of day I have. I deserve to be irritable. You don't know how people treated me today. I deserve to feel sorry for myself. You see, until we really learn to live in grace, until we also learn that people who love us will call us out on our stuff. This is one of the most difficult things of being the church in America's if anybody calls you out on your stuff, it becomes abuse. If anybody says, you know, that's unacceptable behavior. Now, the problem is, on one, on one sense, is that few of us love each other enough to actually be able to say those things. But we need people in our life who are not friends who let us get away with less than the narrow road. We need people in our life who will say, you're cranky, that's not good for you. But what happens is, what happens is really is because there's not grace-filled atmospheres, we hide from each other. We say we're fine, we say we're okay, we say we're good, when really we're not, we're falling apart, our marriages are struggling. Our families are struggling. Our health is struggling. But we don't know how to connect with each other because we're afraid of condemnation of each other. Understand, motivation is everything. Motivation is everything because your heart is everything. One reason why legalistic churches are successful is because if, you, if I give you all the rules and I tell you what the score is, then you can hide your heart and just keep the rules. But once those rules and the score is taken away, what happens now? How in the world am I going to function in this group because I'm supposed to love and be honest, and when I'm irritable, they might call me on it? But that's what real, that's what real hearts oriented towards God and each other look like. Now, the truth is, if somebody just dumps a load of truth on you, it's not truth because there's no love in it. But if somebody just loves you and never speaks the truth to you, then it's not love because there's no truth in it. When we're called to change, we're called to change from the inside out so that a bad tree becomes a good tree because only a good tree is going to produce fruit. Are you tracking with me a little bit in this? See, you no longer have to prove yourself to anybody because your identity isn't dependent on anything about you. You're a child of the king and no one can take that away from you. See, one of the things that I'm beginning to realize, and maybe you're not ready for this, but if you have really come to the place of accepting it's all of grace, it's unmerited, it's undeserved, but it's mine. 
then you no longer have to prove yourself to anybody. But the problem is we still are not letting grace season our hearts. And so what happens is we're trying to prove ourselves to God. We're trying to prove ourselves to each other. And we're even trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. Let me, let me show you somewhat. Will you stay with me in this? All right, so the first thing you might say is, I'm not trying to impress God. Oh, yes, you are. People have been trying to manipulate God through religion for as long as the fall. It's trying to say, God, look at how much I pray. God, look at how much I read your scriptures. God, see, we may no longer say we've got to keep all the laws of the first five books of the Old Testament. We make a whole new list of laws, a whole new list of rules of do's and don'ts. And we say, this is what I, I did for you, God. This is how I've come through for you, God. And maybe you won't say because you're smart enough not to say I'm trying to impress God. But in your heart of hearts, you're saying, God, you should do what I want you to do because I am the one who has sacrificed and served and given to you. And the minute you say that, that is wide road thinking. And wide road thinking goes straight to destruction. Do you know what Jesus says about wide road thinking? It's prayers that will never be answered because they will not have a hearing from God. Why you pray is more important than how you pray. See, there's a problem that we have, all of us. We have this instinct to self-atone. We have this instinct. If you've ever said, I'll make it up to you, that's an instinct to self-atone. In other words, to say, you know, I, there's a way that I can take away the offense or the hurt that I've done by doing more. So the instinct to self-atone goes deep into our hearts. You see, we want to make amends for our sins, our own. In other words, we want to prove we're not as bad as our behavior seems to suggest. We want to, in many ways, to avoid the fact that there is no self-atonement whatsoever. None. I mean, if you have been hurt by somebody, nothing they do can take the hurt away. If someone has stolen from you, even if they gave you back what they stole, the violation of your property cannot be taken away. Or the sense of security that you had before can never be regained. That is how significant sin is. It cannot be atoned by us. But when you say, I'm a person of grace, I'm no longer living in fear. I'm no longer living in punishment. Then you can begin to say what God has done through Christ because of his grace, because of his undeserved love to us. Grace is so simple to understand, yet it's so hard to grasp. I can't tell you the number of times that I've prayed with people. And the first thing they said to me I'm just not worthy of his love. That's wide road thinking. Because it's saying, I need to be worthy of his love. Can I just blow that up for a minute? You will never, you will never be worthy of his love. So either you receive it as a gift or you don't got it. But to receive it as a gift goes against every instinct of the natural heart. That's why you have to have a new heart that says, I don't deserve it, but that's no longer relevant. Because what we live in a world, we live in a world in which you only get love if you deserve love. Even as parents, sometimes we do that with our kids. We withhold love so that we can make them behave. We tie identity to things like shame. I remember as a kid, my mother never said you did wrong. She's always like, what's wrong with you? That gets to you after a while. It's like, what is wrong with me? 
You understand shame is more powerful than guilt. Guilt can actually be helpful because when you do wrong, you need to know you did wrong. But shame is incredibly debilitating to the heart. Shame causes fear, comes from fear, and makes sure that you stay hiding. Anything you're ashamed of is something you're hiding. Now, we don't just try to manipulate God. We try to prove ourselves to other people. Now, maybe you won't say this out loud, but I think if we get honest, we'll say, I really want people to be impressed by me. I mean, if you want approval, you want affection, you want respect, you're basically saying, I want them to be impressed by me. So we really don't want people finding out what we're like on the inside. That's where shame comes in. Fear provides a mask that we can hide our real selves. But here's what Jesus is talking about in this Sermon on the Mount. He says, basically, if we settle for living like other people or or we settle for living for other people's approval or we settle for living for other people's affection or attention or whatever it is, then we're always going to fall short of living for Christ. Because you see, other people's behavior is wide road behavior. Other people's attitudes and the way they, they critique things or the way they value things is always wide road, wide gate behavior. So if you're trying to get the approval from the wide road, it means you're not living on the narrow road. It's really that simple. And, and, and it says that you're still saying, you know, I've got a foot in grace, but I've got a foot in the wide road too. I want a foot on the foundation of the rock, but I got a foundation in the sand as well. See, when we measure ourselves against other people and decide, you know, that maybe fortunately there's other people in this room less righteous than you, and you can say, I compare favorably, at least I'm not like that guy or that woman or whatever it is. And you do that, what you're saying is, I'm trying to prove my worth by how unworthy you are. Or I'm trying to prove my worth by impressing you and getting your approval. This is why Paul says in Galatians 1.10, he says, if you live for the fear of man, you are not living in the fear of God. It's an either or. Do you understand? Paul understood this really well. He was a wide road religious guy. He was an all out wide road religious guy. You know what, the way he looked at people? He looked on on the road and he said, that person's ahead of me. I hate him. I'm going to beat him. I'm going to compete with him. I'm going to know what he knows until I'm ahead of him. And he looked at the people behind him and he said, look at those sorry people. I disdain them. They're not even worth my time or my attention. Here he was, a, a devout religious, wide road man, and he hated those in front of him, and he disdained and had no time for those behind him. Do you understand how religion is not going to save you? Devotion is not going to save you. Only when you recognize the deceitfulness of your own heart and the emptiness of your own heart and your inability to know what is right and wrong, and when you use other people's opinion in order to compare yourself either favorably or unfavorably, you are having wide road thinking. And it leads to destruction. You're like, man, Mike, you're picking on us pretty good. <laughs> I am, I am, friends, because I think you're getting tired of being tired. And guess what tires you out? Wide road thinking. It isn't just ultimate destruction. Yes, it is ultimate destruction. It's destructive from start to finish. Do you not hear your Savior, the Lord Jesus, say, a bad tree does not produce good fruit? So what's got to happen? I have to change from the inside out so the good tree can produce good fruit. Guess what happens? You decide. You decide, is your heart going to be a good tree or is your heart going to be a bad tree? And the definition is not, do I do the right things? Do I avoid the wrong things? The definition is, what is the orientation of my heart? Am I turned towards God? 
Do I have a heart after God? Think about it this way. If God is just in your life, but God is not your life, then you're a wide road person. Because you haven't realized how narrow the real road is. Because it narrows down to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Narrows down pretty, pretty narrow. And the only way you get on that road is to humble yourself and say, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to give. I have no righteousness of my own. Can I give you a picture? When Jesus did a lot of significant things, the Last Supper, sent his disciples to wait for him for, ten, for the coming of the Holy Spirit for 10 days, he sent them to the upper room. So the upper room kind of becomes this place of encountering the manifest presence of God. You cannot walk into the upper room standing upright. The only way you can enter the upper room is to bow. You see, the narrow road cannot be entered into by walking upright. It can only be done if you humble yourself and you bow. But the wide road takes no bowing. The wide road says, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Look how important I am. Look how sacrifices I've made. You see, friends, and this is, you may not be able to hear me on this, but if you are easily offended by people, you're a wide road person. If every, every slight becomes a major issue in your life, you're a wide road thinker. Because again, if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then the narrow road is filled with people who know they have no righteousness of their own. So the expectations are different. The expectations are changed. The assumptions are different. I am walking on this road, not because I deserve this road. I am walking on this road because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. And if you're on this road, you're on this road for the exact same purpose. And so you're just as broken as I am. So my expectation is God is transforming you just like he's transforming me. But if I'm sitting there going, well, you should be more righteous by now then I'm revealing I should be more righteous than I am right now. Or I'm revealing I don't understand grace at all. So you cannot change in any meaningful way if you're settling for something less. One of the issues that many of us have is this issue of shame. When we mess up, we feel shame. One writer says this way, when we mess up, our primary concern is that we can't think of ourselves as a, as a former sinner because now I've proven I'm still a sinner or I'm still sinning. We can't feel good about ourselves until we put some distance between ourselves and our last big sin. For us, sin has become first and foremost sin against ourselves. If I sin, then I've let myself down. What I feel when I sin is the offense against me and my self-esteem not the offense against God. See, that's wide road thinking. That's sand foundation. Because in a sense, if I really start understanding what's going on in the spiritual life, you're going to have moments where the pressure comes and the sins you've so carefully hidden get squeezed up to the surface. You see, they were always there. You just have been really good at pushing and suppressing and, and getting them really hidden. And the Holy Spirit goes, you know, I know that's there. And so it doesn't matter if you're 62 like me or you're 25 or whatever it is. He's always squeezing. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really cheap when it comes to my toothpaste. I hate to have any of it go into the trash can that I haven't gotten every little bit out. And so I'm sitting there squeezing the daylights to get the last bit of toothpaste out. And when I was doing that, I always think, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing with me. 
And see, what I want to say is, what I want to say is, you know, that's not me. That's, you know, that's, that's not true of me. Instead of saying, wait a minute, this really is true of me. The Spirit is, has waited till this moment to say, this shameful place must come up so that I can heal you. And you see, if it's all of grace, you go, go for it, Holy Spirit. If it's all of grace, you don't go, let me hide this. Let me make sure nobody knows this is true of me. Instead, you go, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to confess my sins that I might be healed. I'm even going to confess them to other people so that I can be healed. You don't sit there going, how can I make up for this? How can I make sure this never happens again? I got to put some guards on my life. Instead, you go, okay, what is this revealing about my heart? You see, if you just make yourself accountable to more legalism, you're just as much on the wide road as ever. It's when you are accountable to your heart that real change starts to happen. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you a few possibilities. In Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to have to talk fast. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Please, friends, can you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying we have that tendency to try to manipulate God. We have a tendency to try to impress other people. We have this tendency to try to justify ourselves. But he's saying, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? He says, you received the Holy Spirit when you believed the gospel, when you believed that you were justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's when the Spirit came on your life, not when you started saying, I'm going to do better. When you realized you couldn't do better and you had to have an intervention by the Spirit himself is when you began to change. And Paul says, after you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? In other words, Paul is saying, you become a Christian by faith in Jesus, you stay a Christian by faith in Jesus, and you grow as a Christian by faith in Jesus. The order can never be released. You trust in Jesus first and always. Here's the truth. You always need Jesus as your Savior, not just at the beginning. When you, it manifests that you've got a problem with lust, you need Jesus to save you from your lust. When it manifests that you have impatience with your family or your children, then you need Jesus to save you from your impatience. And it will not save you to get more willpower. It'll make you more stubborn on the wide road. What will save you is to recognize that confession of sin is your verbal consent for the Holy Spirit that you began with to now complete the work that he's doing in you. The Spirit is not looking for you to have more willpower. He's looking for you to have more, more and more consent so he has more and more access. Now, can you hear me on this today? All right, two of you, I'll keep going. <laughs> says we're two or more to gather together. All right. Now this last part, this last part, I, I, if I could just, if I could somehow deliver this to you and just have you just consume it, I would, because this is so important. Everything that I've been saying leads up to this. This is one of the leaders of the Great Awakening back in the 1700s, he said this, no sin can be crucified either in heart or life unless it first be pardoned in your conscience. Because there will be want of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. And if it's not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power. This is what this means. It's such a powerful truth. If you are still wrestling with whether you're forgiven or not, if you're still wrestling in your conscience, do I need to atone for this? Do I need to work harder? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to do this? Then what you're doing is you're pushing Jesus away and Jesus is the only power to change you. 
Because as long as you feel like you've got to do something to get the pardon, then you're not experiencing the pardon, which then doesn't allow you to experience his power. So if you have ever said, I know others forgive me, but I can't forgive myself, or I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, you are pushing Jesus away and trying to save yourself. It won't work. Listen to some of this teaching here for a minute. You've got to grab hold of this truth. No amount of your guilt will ever give you power to change. Guilt never atones for anything. When you remain in guilt and you remain in your shame, you remain powerless. The sin which caused the guilt will continue to have power over you because you've not dealt with the guilt or the shame. So what must happen? Here's where faith, it's faith from start to finish. It's Jesus, your savior from start to finish. We allow, we consent to God's pardon into our conscience. Could you say this with me? I receive. I receive. Come on, say it again. I receive. I, receive. I, believe. I believe. You have pardoned me. And it is a total, absolute pardon. Total, absolute. Past, Past, present, present. Future. future. You see, when we receive the pardon for our sin from Jesus, then we receive the power of Jesus over the sin. But as long as you are still feeling and living in the guilt and the shame of the sin, the sin has power of you over you, not Jesus. This is wide road thinking. This is one of my favorite things right here. We're changed when we look at Jesus. We're never changed when all we're doing is looking at our sin. We're changed when we delight in Jesus. We're changed when we commune with Jesus. I, I, I know why my wife says to me, I'm sorry when, uh, you know, I've got to ask you for water. I'm sorry that you have to cook dinner or whatever it is. I know why she does it because she has such a responsible heart. And many of you are like her. You feel like you should do what is right. You feel like you ought to, you know, be moral, that you ought to not fail. But let me tell you, friends, the Holy Spirit's not revealing how unrighteous you are to leave you there. He's not doing it to embarrass you. He's doing it so that you will stop being responsible and instead you will receive Jesus taking the responsibility of your sin and your shame and saying, my conscience is pardoned. As long as you keep thinking, well, if I just feel guilty enough, or if I'm just ashamed enough, I will tell you what, that guilt and that shame will stay in control of you for as long as you let it. That's why your heart must experience this kind of change. Now, I'm going to read you one last quote that I really think I, I want you to have, even though it's a little bit late. One of the Puritans that I read all the time, his name is John Fulvell. And uh, here's what he says. Christ pleads the cause of believers by his blood. Unlike other advocates, it's not enough for him to lay out only words, which is a cheaper way of pleading. But he pleads for us by the voice of his own blood. See, there's a paradox here. There's a paradox that I want you to get. If you understand your shame, you understand that shame says there's something wrong with me. Guilt says I did something wrong. But shame says there's something wrong with me. That is far more toxic. That is far more debilitating than guilt. It can lead you into fear and hiding and all kinds of twisted neurotic things. But here's the deal. <laughs> this is the part that's kind of paradoxical. It's terrible to think there's something wrong with me. But the fact is that Jesus' death on the cross says there's definitely something wrong with you. <laughs> this is why the gospel is so offensive. Because in order to accept the gospel, you have to accept that, there, that the shame is real. 
But what happens is when you accept the gospel, your shame becomes irrelevant. It's not that it isn't real. It isn't that there isn't something wrong with you. There's definitely something wrong with you. I can see it today. But there is one who is advocating for you. He's pleading on your behalf and he's pleading to you and says, I'm not saying just feel better. I'm not saying don't feel guilty. I'm not saying, you know, don't recognize your shame. He's saying, I shed my blood for your shame. And his blood speaks a better word. It's a word of freedom. It's a word of healing. It's a word of power. And the question is, is your heart oriented to his word from his blood? Or is your heart oriented towards the wide road and the wide road thinking. Will you stand with me as we close this morning? The simplicity of the gospel is this, is that God sent his son Jesus not only to take away your sin, but so that you would receive the righteousness of Christ. Mike reminded us, scripture says that our righteousness, what we try to do to produce good, what we think makes us good, the good works that we try to produce, our righteousness is like filthy rags. The translation is actually, it's like menstrual rags. That's how filthy our righteousness is compared to our wondrous, glorious God. And so the simplicity is this this morning. Will you step into the righteousness that is given to you through the blood of Jesus? Or do you want to stay in the filthy rags? His blood speaks a better word this morning. His blood speaks your righteousness this morning that when you unite your life to Christ, you can gaze on God's face and be transformed by his glory. So I bless you this morning to receive the simplicity of the gospel. There is no catch. You don't have to work to earn anything. Receive that the work is done. That when you feel the squeezing, it is not because God is trying to punish you or make you work harder. It is because of his kindness and his goodness that leads you to repentance. So I bless you to receive that this morning, to gaze on the look of your father and be transformed by his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.